Well, friends, I invite you to pull out your, your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 20 uh, this morning. That uh, as we're here on Easter, there are many, many beautiful passages where we see our resurrected Savior encountering his disciples. And today we're going to be looking at the passage where Jesus meets Mary Magdalene and very specifically seeks to encourage her and comfort her with his own resurrection. But 10 years ago, in September of 2013, the cover story of Time magazine was this question. Can Google solve death? Google, of all things. Can Google solve death? They had just invested in Calico Labs with the purpose of extending uh, the human lifespan. They wanted to solve death, and it's been 10 years, and no solution seems imminent. But this is a crucial question for us as human beings. Is there a solution to death? Because this question of, or this reality of death, casts a massive shadow in our life. That we know that if we, we know that if we could somehow change pain, evil, and suffering, then that would actually completely transform the way that we live. So that if we could eliminate death, that would change how we live. And so we're here this morning because that is actually what Easter is all about. That the Christian belief is that the problem of death has actually been solved. And so life is actually very different. That because Jesus defeated death, life is very different for us. And we're going to be looking at and seeing how this is the case in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word that God has spoken to us in love so that we would know him. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they have taken away my Lord, she told them, and I do not know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? And supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Do not cling to me, Jesus told her. Since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. It's a gospel reading. I'm mixing it up today. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful good news, how we see your son alive, that his tomb is empty, 
And be with us now as we consider your word and how your word speaks to our heart and our deepest needs and how you completely change how we live today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we step into this passage, think about the question, what do you do with your grief? What do you do with your grief? We experience considerable grief in our lives as we lose loved ones to death, where we lose, miss, we miss out and lose opportunities, where we experience broken relationships and estrangement, alienation, disappointments, and so much more, that we experience considerable grief within our life, that to the point that grief is actually a constant companion in our lives, that Counselors will even say, show us that grief is very predictable, that there's five stages where you go from denial to anger to bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And here with Mary, she is experiencing considerable grief, that she is clearly hurting, she is lost, she's confused. And so it's no wonder then that this passage, that this event, this encounter is actually recorded for us in Scripture. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers us hope, offers us a hope in the face of grief, offers us hope in the face of suffering, offers us hope. And this is a hope where we have a new name and a new reputation and a new power that shapes our life because God is actually doing something in our hearts amidst our grief. And the big idea that I want us to think about this morning is that we have a resurrection hope amidst our grief. We have a resurrection hope amidst our grief. And the first thing I want us to consider as we look at this text is actually Mary's grief. Mary's grief. Looking at verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And so here's Mary Magdalene. And aside, well, Mary Magdalene, she is heartbroken. But something to know about Mary Magdalene is that aside from Jesus' mother, Mary, Mary Magdalene is the woman whom we know the most about in the Gospels. That every Gospel writer of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about her. And that she was once possessed by seven demons until Jesus came alongside her and cast them out from her life. That here's Jesus, he healed her. He restored her humanity. She was out of her mind. She was not herself until she met Jesus. And when Jesus miraculously removed the demons from her life and restored her humanity. And so here is Mary, that she knew this misery of sin in a deeply profound way. And she also knew the salvation of Jesus Christ in a very deeply profound way. That she knew firsthand the type of salvation that Jesus was offering because her humanity was truly restored. And she loved Jesus. She loved him. And so it's, to highlight this, all of Jesus' friends, the 11 disciples, the men, they're just, they're somewhere else. But Mary Magdalene and two other women, they were the ones who went to the grave on the third day to care for Jesus' body. 
None of the disciples did that, just these women. Here's Mary Magdalene, and so it's very clear that she loves Jesus. And so she is heartbroken at the fact that, he, that he's dead, and yet his body's gone. That she cannot even show love and respect to the one who restored her humanity. That she's outside his tomb grieving the loss of a friend, the loss of her rabbi, the loss of the one who restored her humanity, and his body's gone. So think about the grief that she's experiencing. It is grief upon grief upon grief upon grief. And each one of us has experienced the misery of sin in our lives. And we have experienced this misery of sin in different ways. It could be the harsh words of a loved one. It could be a death of a friend, parent, child. It could be the loss of a relationship or financial security. Disappointment, being hurt by people who are close to you and so much more. And these losses pile up. It's one thing after another in our fallen world. It's cumulative. But there's something about grief that is actually meant to show us something. Because grief can actually reveal what is important to you. Grief can reveal idols, things that you center your life around. That grief will even tell you that things should not be this way. Because nobody, and truly nobody, ever wants to go through hard times. No one wants hard times to come to them. But when they do, these hard times have a way of making you ask, what am I really counting on right now? Am I building my life on a sure foundation that is able to meet the demands of life? These demands are beyond my control. And when we think about the Christian faith, Christians have gathered for the past 2,000 years. But on Easter Sunday, these Christians, when we gather on Easter Sunday, they are not saying the stock market has risen. The stock market has risen indeed. That's not what Christians say. We say he has risen. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. See, hardship reveals where you put your hope. Hardship reveals where you put your hope. And there's only one thing in the entire face of the human existence that is able to put up with poverty, disease, pain, hardship, death, and suffering, war, famine. There's only one thing, and it is Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. And so we gather this morning to remember and to celebrate the only hope that is capable of sustaining you through everything that you will face in your life. It's not you, and it's not me. It's Jesus Christ. And so this is what grief can do in our life. This is what happens when we face hardship, that grief and hardship reveals what it is that we put our hope in. And when we put our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, what you'll find is that your grief will paralyze you. That grief will make you wonder, who am I? Do I know who I am? That grief makes you question your identity. That why is this happening to me? And so here's Mary, and she, this is actually what she's experiencing. That she lost her hope. That Jesus was actually her hope, and he died. And so she is grieving the death of her hope and the fact that his body was missing. But is that what really happened? Did, did her hope really die? 
Or does she simply misunderstand what hope is? So this is what's going on with Mary's grief. But she's coming to this tomb, and it's an empty tomb. And this is the second thing I want us to think about. Because the promise of the empty tomb or the reality of the empty tomb means that when things are bleak and when things are hard, that God is actually doing his best work. Because here's Mary and she comes to this empty tomb in verse 12. She sees two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the other end where his feet lay. And so she sees this empty tomb. She sees that there's no body there. She sees these two, two angels And she completely misses out on the fact that these are angels. And angels within the biblical story, they serve as messengers of the Lord. They come to speak to God's people, say that God is about to do something truly incredible. And so here are these angels, and they're coming to Mary to tell her something. And what they tell her is, and this is news about God, but they say to her in verse 13, woman, why are you crying? Woman, why are you crying? See, here's Mary Magdalene. She was with Jesus for the majority of his earthly ministry. That he heard Jesus repeatedly say that he would rise from the grave. That after three days of being in the grave, he would rise from the dead. And so she heard Jesus say this over and over and over again. And yet she's at the empty tomb. But she's at the empty tomb and she does not even consider what Jesus said. She thinks that someone stole Jesus' body. And so that's why she's crying. She is in incredible grief. But there's also incredible honesty here that Mary's hurt. She is confused. And she assumes that someone stole Jesus' body out of hatred, out of cruelty. And honestly, that would not be surprising. As we heard John say earlier, speaking about the, the events of Holy Week, that would not be surprising as Jesus was falsely accused and he faced a rigged trial and he was cr- crucified upon the cross. But that is, but the, Jesus' body was not stolen. That is not why the tomb is empty. The reason why the tomb is empty is that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do, that he rose from the grave, that he defeated, He rose from the dead, and he himself, as we read in John 11, that he himself is the resurrection and the life. So woman, why are you crying? The tomb is empty. He rose from the dead. This is what the angels are trying to communicate and speak to her, that these angels are trying to connect these dots, that why are you crying? That doesn't make sense with everything you have heard. This tomb is empty. Or that one of the other gospel accounts, it's actually Luke, says this, that why are you looking for the living among the dead? Because the living don't live among the dead. This is incredible. And so this question, why are you crying, is meant to help you even realize something about your own life. Is that when you are crying, you do not cry, you do not weep, you do not grieve without hope. I saw this past week uh, a pastor in San Francisco. He wrote something on social media. He said, hey, I'm working on my Easter sermon this week. And he said this, that this is my very first Easter sermon since having cancer. I have a whole new perspective on our Easter hope. 
So when we think about this hope that we have from the resurrection, this hope is not ignorance of human suffering where we just don't, aren't aware or we are ignoring the, the plight that we face in our life. But hope is also not just wishful thinking. We're like, oh, it's going to be a beautiful day. Oh, I hope it's going to be warm today. That's not, that's not what hope is. Hope, biblically speaking, is grounded in Jesus' resurrection. As we read in our call of worship from 1 Peter, we read this, that in God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a new hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the resurrection leads to a new hope that we have. And so that our faith and our hope are in God. And so the resurrection shows us something concrete, that Jesus defeated death. That we see that in the resurrection, there's an end to our pain, There's an end to your tears. There's an an end to broken relationships and alienation. That there's an end to suffering. And that there's an end. So that one day we will know this promise that Jesus speaks over. That all things are made new. The resurrection guarantees that there is a limit to your sadness. The resurrection guarantees there's a limit to your grief. And hope acknowledges this, that hope says that there is a limit and it's that suffering is real, but there is an end to it. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. So I love what first Corinthians says, or what Paul says there, where he says this, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is thy victory? Years ago, when my best friend from high school died, my friend Steve wrote in a card one of John Donne's holy sonnets, and this was the line that he included, death, be not proud, because even death will die. See, friends, we grieve with hope, and we grieve with hope, and we have this hope because the tomb is empty, because the tomb is empty. And so here's Mary once again. She's being asked this question by the angels, but she's not connecting the dots. She's actually oblivious to the Lord's work, that she is spiritually blind, even when Jesus is actually right in front of her. This is what verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was him. That she is spiritually blind. She does not recognize Jesus. She does not recognize him. And so Mary discovers that this is Jesus when he does something. He speaks to her. He says, woman, why are you crying? This is repeated now for us twice. But then she's, she's thinking like, hey, are you the gardener? Have you stolen my savior's, my friend's, my teacher's body? Where have you put him? Then here's this in verse 16. This verse 16 is when Jesus speaks to her and Mary realizes that this is the one she is looking for. And all he says is her name. That Jesus says, Mary. That God is the one who speaks to us here. That God, we see that God is the one who calls you. That he calls out to you. That he is the one who speaks words to you and he rescues you. And he rescues you completely out of grace. And it's Worth noting that here in the resurrection account here, the very first eyewitness is a woman. That in this patriarchal society in the the Roman world, 
woman had no legal standing. That if she would go to court and say, hey, the resurrection really happened, no one would believe her because of her gender. But God has woman being the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But there's also something else about Mary here that in today's world, she would have been in a psychiatric hospital. She was possessed by demons. And so when you think about this, it is scandalous. It is surprising that Jesus reveals himself as the resurrected Lord to her. And that's the point. That is the point because grace is scandalous. Because our salvation, our life with God is holy by grace. That our life with, with God is not because of who we are, of our pedigree or our work or anything like that. Nor is our life with God because of anything we have done. Our life with God is solely and wholly by God's grace. And this is what Mary is discovering here. And this is the third thing to consider. The discovery. That as we look here at this passage, it's something to note that it is God's desire for you to know not just the reality of the resurrection as a historical fact, but it's also God's desire for you to know the power of the resurrection in your everyday life. That's Philippians 3.10. And so when I'm speaking about the power of the resurrection, I'm not simply talking about the intellectual knowledge, but the experiential knowledge of the resurrection. And this is actually, being honest about our quirks as a Reformed church, this is something that uh, we struggle with as Reformed Christians. We don't give enough attention to the resurrection. For example, look at Charles Hodge, a Princeton theologian from 100 years ago. Pull off his systematic theology. You'll find that there's over 125 pages on the crucifixion. And there's only four on the resurrection. Talk about some imbalance there. So, so the question to drill down here is that how do you discover the power of the resurrection in your life? How do you experience the power of the resurrection in your life? And the answer to this is actually seen in how, how Jesus speaks to Mary, that she is actually being unnamed by sin, and yet she is named by Christ. Something to know about sin is that sin actually strips you of your identity. That sin strips you of your identity, and yet Jesus names you. That Jesus loves you, and he knows you, and he gives you a new name. Something to highlight about actually the devil, one of the names for the devil is Satan. And Satan literally means the accuser. And what Satan does is that he comes alongside and he accuses you. He accuses you according to your sins. That you are an idolater, a liar, gossip, thief, pervert, adulterer, failure, and so on. And while these accusations are likely true because we're all sinners, they have actually been dealt with upon the cross. They have been dealt with upon the cross and those sins have been forgiven because of what Jesus has done. And so it's actually a cruel thing for someone to actually list out all your sins and your failures when they have been forgiven by Christ. And this is actually Mary's discovery here. That here's Mary. If you look at this, how, there's this immediate transition that when she meets the angels, she's just woman. When she meets Jesus for the first time, it's just woman. Why are you crying? But the second time Jesus speaks to her, he gives her her name. And what we see is that Mary is being named by God, and, and so have you. 
that you have been named by God. Something to highlight about what God, something to highlight about God is that God, he has the very first word in the entire universe. Let there be lights. He has the first word and he also has the last word that I am making all things new. When you think about this idea of being unnamed by sin, think about Eve. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. That Eve, like she is renamed from this woman Like when sin entered the world and Adam blamed Eve, this woman whom you gave me, Eve is renamed to Eve, the mother of the living. This continues where Abraham becomes, Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob, the one who usurps to Israel, one who strives with God. Mara, which means bitter one, becomes Naomi, pleasant one. Saul to Paul, slaves become my people. Foreigners become citizens. Weak become strong. Humble are exalted. The prodigal son becomes the celebrated son. Simon Peter, the reactionary, the unstable one, becomes Peter, the rock upon the rock. And so here is the story of the resurrection where God gives you a new name and a new life that God renames you. That here's Christ who has defeated death and he gives you your name. That you are no longer known as the sinner, but the righteous one. And so here's God and he loves you and he dignifies you. That you are no longer known by your sins and your failures. But who you are is actually grounded in Christ's death, his work upon the cross, his life grounded in his resurrection. That your sins were punished upon the cross. As Jesus endured God's wrath, he paid the penalty for your sins and he gives you a new reputation. This is the justification of our salvation, that we are justified. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is actually living within you and making your, his home in you. That the resurrection life is actually inside your heart right now. That Paul says that the, the old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations. And so this new reputation, this new reputation arises from your justification is also clearly linked with the resurrection. That you are no, lo- no longer known as a sinner, but you're also dead to sin as we are new creations in Christ. That this is our resurrection hope. And so here, there's a tension here. There's a really clear tension because how are we a resurrection people in a world full of suffering and sadness when we are still struggling with sin in our everyday life? There, how, how do we make sense of this? Well, Jackie Hill Perry made this observation. There tends to be a disconnect among Christians regarding the resurrection. We know how to dress up for it. Just look around. We know how to celebrate it. Let's talk about amazing songs. We know how to sing about it. But have we learned how to live in light of it? Because the resurrection is a historical event and an avenue of present power. And we do not simply want to remember the resurrection as a past tense event. Because Christ's victory over sin and death is practical for the Christian as it changes everything. 
So think about your life. Are you struggling with your despair? Are you struggling with dying to yourself? Are you struggling with prayerlessness, pride? Consider this. It could be that you don't truly believe in the resurrection. And by believing, I do not mean that you do not believe that Jesus actually got up. What I mean is that it's possible that you do not believe that because Jesus defeated death, so can you. Do you believe in the resurrection? See, friends, hope, coming back to this resurrection hope, hope is tangible. It's visible in our lives. And, and this is actually how we prove that the resurrection, that we grieve with hope. We do not grieve with dis- and given to despair, but we grieve with hope. That we love difficult neighbors. That we are able to confess our sin and repent a little more quickly and a little less defensively. That we are able to go to work and enter our vocations with a sense of purpose and mission. That we are able to commit and recommit to praying for that impossible situation. That we can share the gospel with the lost that we can persevere in a long-term battle with depression or chronic illness, that you can approach your spouse, your children, or a roommate with wonder and affection, where you can take risks and step into places of serving where no one else wants to go, that this is what hope looks like in our everyday life. This is what resurrection looks like in our everyday life. That there's faith in the resurrection, that there's this belief that Jesus defeated death and that this hope arises from Christ's victory and it's visible within our lives today. So going back to our grief, and this is where we'll end, what does this have to do with our sadness? Well, one writer says, do not abandon yourselves to despair. We are an Easter people and hallelujah is our song. Because Christ trampled death. He swallowed up the grave. He defeated our greatest enemy so that we would have life with him. And when we look to Jesus in faith, and we look to Jesus and step out in obedience, we will actually see the new creation in our, in our lives. So do not abandon yourself to hope. No. Do not abandon yourselves to despair. There we go. Do not abandon yourselves to despair. But hold on to hope and believe. Believe that more is possible because Christ has defeated death so that you would have the power of resurrection in your life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful news that we have that the grave is empty that the grave is empty, that you have come to work in our life so that we would know you, that you have dealt with our sin, that the old is gone, that we are in fact dead to sin because we are new creations, that your son defeated death and we are united to him and you have given us your spirit so that we would know your work more clearly in our lives. So Father, give us eyes of faith. Help us to look to you and believe in you. Help us to step out in faith where our lives are known, are marked by obedience and marked by hope and marked by love so that we can display your resurrection, your new creation in our everyday life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.